the deeper liberation is one of deeper connection. Uh, and that's an intimacy. My own teacher used to talk about yoga as the pursuit of a deeper intimacy. And to have intimacy, we have to have clear boundaries. Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to the Glow Podcast. This is part two of my conversation with Professor Douglas Brooks. To briefly recap, Professor Brooks and I were deep into discussing the evolution of yoga, comparing notes on some of Douglas's favorite yoga scholars, and exploring how some of the terms and definitions of yoga have evolved over millennia. Now in part two of our conversation, we're exploring definitions of true freedom and an understanding of the human experience as a multifaceted dance of what it could mean for one to be engaged in the ongoing process of living skillfully. We talk about cultural appropriation and how yoga philosophies have a rich history of borrowing across cultures and times. When we left off in part one, we had skipped over roughly a thousand years of yoga history. There are a variety of texts I had hoped we would at least introduce here in this episode, but I much prefer the direction this conversation eventually took. For much deeper explorations, please see our extensive library of education content delivered by both Professor Brooks and Professor Chris Chapel on glow.com. I'll put a link in our show notes. So let's pick it up where we left off when I was pointing out that we had telescoped roughly a thousand years of history. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I just want to pause you there and just note that we skipped over roughly a thousand years potentially of other ways in which the word yoga has appeared. And yeah, yeah, we did, we did jump ahead. And, and that's part of the, the part of the, uh, part of the challenge of studying yoga, um, you know, in a, in a kind of historical and serious way is that we can often, is that we don't have a lot of historical benchmarks. Um, the yoga tradition treats itself in a more kind of, um, self-inclusive and almost insular way. So putting dates on texts or on particular characters can be very difficult. So we move from the very earliest definitions of yoga, which have to do with making worthwhile connections into the realms of asceticism. And that's going to take yoga into kind of a vast array of characters and traditions as it becomes more sophisticated, it fragments and diversifies. And so it's very, it's clear to say that, 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 that by, say, around 700 or 600 before the Christian era, that's a thousand years after the first mention in the Veda, the word yoga is clearly associated with characters who are going to be representative of what we will later call Hindu traditions. But yoga is also clearly going to refer to the methods and practices and accomplishments of people like the historical Buddha or the founder of the Jain tradition, uh, the historical founder being Mahavira, um, who, who predates the Buddha by about a century. We date the historical Buddha, the character we call Shakyamuni, to about between 500 and 400 before the Christian era. And so the Buddha is a yogi, as is Mahavira of the Jain tradition, as are the characters who inhabit uh, the stories and 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 philosophies 
of those early Hindu sources that come as the conclusion of the Vedic literature. We call those the Upanishads. So all of these traditions are diversifying and, and yet focusing on, on this word yoga, and there is a great deal of commonality, and especially in applied practice, Derek. That's where, that's where uh, the wheels turn in yoga. If we, look at, if we look at, say, sources that are describing the practices of interiorization and meditation, of contemplation, introspection, philosophical speculation, all of those kinds of, of, of wise person pursuits that encompass, you know, ways in which we treat our bodies and our minds and pursue our, our hearts, desires, and emotions. One of the things we immediately find is, is, is that many of these practices are shared. If we were, if we were, if it were 600 before the Christian era, we were watching, or 500 before the Christian era, and we were watching the Buddha meditate, and we were looking at the sources of the Upanishads, and maybe those those Jaina or Jain practitioners down the road from us, we would see them doing many of the same things, employing many of the same methods and practices. Would this be, would you call it cultural appropriation? They're all appropriating from each other um, again and again. One of, the, one of the things that makes India such a great place is that if it's a, is that, and this is a, a basic strategy you can always follow, if it's a good idea, it's our idea. So it doesn't matter who first, who, so beg, borrowing, stealing, and appropriating is in fact the history of civilization and the history of yoga itself. They're all learning from each other. They're all, uh, they're all appropriating from each other. And much later on, when this gets very sophisticated with, uh, with systematic teachings and social organizations that we would identify as kind of religious organizations like the early Buddhist community or Sangha, the evolution of ashram communities and teachers and leaders and gurus and that sort of thing. And all of those places, they're, they're lifting, borrowing, begging, stealing, plagiarizing all from each other. That's been well documented in history. But what they share is the idea that Van Boutenen gives us in his definition. And that is, they are all interested in, a, in, a, in the way in which a deep personal self-yoking takes up particular tasks, efforts, thoughts, considerations, meditations, practices that are for usually quite specific goals and aims. And those goals, again, they look out into the world and they say, what's the value in this limited and temporal life? And how should we care for the world? How should we care for nature and culture and for each other in very practical ways? And then how do we care for the soul or for our spirit or for what lies deeply within us or for what lies within human possibility? And then to bring it back to the Bhagavad Gita, you refer to Krishna's revolutionary, co-opted, repurposed. Mm. And we see that again and again in the history of yoga. The Gita is just probably it's, it's one of its early and important points of, 
of reference because here we have a, a kind of new synthesis of concerns and considerations that that are in dialogue and now in juxtaposition and philosophically in contention with other views, views of characters that we would call Buddhists or Jains or uh, others on the landscape of, of this kind of vast um, religious and spiritual pursuit. And what the Bhagavad Gita does is begin to define and collect and, and reconsider um, so much of what has happened in the previous thousand years before it. It, it, the yoga is always a history of accumulation and and acquisition of and borrowing and and a, appropriating from any source and that's what we really see in the west and one of the things we can say one of the modern critiques of kind of modern postural yoga is um is that you know we've we've appropriated you know, certain facets of these traditions and practices. And we kind of get cultural appropriation becomes a kind of a, a, a negative term. Well, it is uh, of, as, as, as if we were, as, as if we're just stealing or, or abusing when in fact the entire history of these traditions is our, our people making connections and then borrowing, adapting, assimilating, and very specifically choosing to define yoga for themselves. And so the appropriation of yoga in the West, as far as, as far as we can say, looking back across the history of the traditions, is, is really just another moment of, of history and culture converging upon appropriation. That is, uh, like, yoga is a history of, 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 of bees in pursuit of the nectar, you know, and and the bees all go out and they gather the nectar from whatever flowers they can find and they bring it back to the hive and that hive creates its own honey it creates its own experience its own digestible food its own nourishment and so the yogas of the west are just are are another part of that process of of collecting information you know collecting the nectar the things of value and making connection and bringing that back to the hive, bringing that back to some place, some instance, some civilization, and then transmuting it. You know, the way bees turn nectar into honey. They literally, they literally partially digest it and then they cough it up with their own, with their own alchemical and, and, and particular form. And so, and so, like every hive makes its makes its honey. Every community makes its yoga, huh. and that's happened again and again. And then across history, and you see it. We see it, say, very vividly in later yoga traditions, where where they are very shamelessly and and willfully and deliberately just just like again, like honeybees, just taking whatever little bit or whatever nectar they want. And then bringing it back to their own worlds, digesting it and turning it into their own forms of nourishment. Modern modern yoga in the West is is a particular kind of honey. It's a flavor, and you'll find it even across different traditions in the West now. 
know, there's all kinds of modern postural yoga. And what you're really looking at are sort of different hives, different, different, different collections of experiences and appropriations brought back, considered, digested, and then offered up into the community again as nourishment. The history of the study of yoga really, uh, really advanced with the with this transmutation of yoga into the West, and um, and a lot of early scholarship didn't pay much attention to the elements of yoga that that formulate modern postural yoga. So scholars like like uh, like Mallinson and and Singleton and others who have a very keen and and uh, serious insight into the history of of those elements that that most how should we say vividly and and importantly contribute to modern postural yoga those folks uh have really reinvigorated the study of yoga but that also belongs to kind of the history of yoga itself um there's always been in the history of yoga a real contention between concerns of the body and concerns of the spirit or the concerns of the heart. That, and that's a real conflict we find that goes back all the way into the history of yoga. Uh, if, the world, if the world only delivers more of its limitations and, and conditionalities, then how do we treat the body? How do we treat uh, those things that, that, are, that are ephemeral? And that stands in contrast to the pursuit of something richer and deeper, maybe even more enduring, maybe even, as the Hindus say, eternal or or permanent um, in in a spiritual sense, or even, as the Buddhists suggest, into a state that that exempts one or or creates an awakening uh, from which one is liberated from these limited and temporal concerns, and so now is freed in some spiritual sense from from those concerns. And that's going to juxtapose, how should we say, concerns of the body, concerns of the limited and mortal world from these deeper or more spiritual pursuits. That conflict of interests uh, really takes on very different and interesting roles. Early Buddhism has much in common with, say, the basic underlying ethos of Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. Both those, both those traditions um, look at, at the mortal world of human experience with some askance and skepticism. That is, that is the body and our limited and temporal conditions have to be mastered and 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 disciplined and understood to have very sort of limited purpose or value because they represent this endless and continuous process of unrequitable desire and unrequitable fulfillment and can you share with how patanjali spoke about yoga sure so so um Patanjali is, 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 let's pause there and say that there's been a great deal of wonderful scholarship on Patanjali. Um, uh, not only Professor Mallison, but David Gordon White wrote a really beautiful small book about uh, 
kind of an autobiography of Patanjali trying to tell Patanjali's story himself. Christopher Chapel is a an extraordinary scholar of Patanjali's traditions of yoga. But in Patanjali's world, uh, the material world, uh, which is defined by these processes of repetition and cyclical recursion, is is understood to uh, to itself be beginningless, but it's characterized by chronic failure. And so the material world, as Patanjali understands it, is, is going through an, an endless process of its own entropy, its own degradation, and its limitations uh, have to be understood um, as being principally... Um, principally the kind of the source and the cause of all that's problematic in our lives. So Patanjali begins his exposition of yoga, telling us that what we associate as this entire psychophysical complex of ourselves, this being, he calls this, he calls this by the word chitta in Sanskrit. Um, and chitta means consciousness, but in Patanjali's yoga and in his definition of yoga, it means the entire psychophysical experience of a human being. It means body, speech, mind. It means, it means the comprehensive sense of our sense of being a person. But all of that he associates with the world of materiality. And now, because underneath Patanjali's vision of yoga is a very specific set of claims and assertions, a metaphysic, a philosophy, as it were. And that philosophy juxtaposes matter and spirit. And to put it in the simplest terms, matter is defined as anything that goes through process of change. And so that would associate matter not only with physical things, but with thoughts, feelings, even the idea, as it were, of awakening itself is belongs to the world of matter. That is to say, I was not I was not aware, but now I am aware. So anything that can be characterized by change is what Patanjali calls matter. He's got a very specific term for that. He calls it prakriti. But Patanjali has this, this complementary idea that suffused in matter, coextensive with the material reality is a spiritual reality that he calls purusha. And that word can often mean human. It can mean spirit. It can mean self or something like self. Um, but purusha means, but purusha stands in contrast. The spirit stands in contrast to matter by the very, by its simple feature of its permanence, its, its changelessness. And so Patanjali says that there is a part of us that that has always been, and that as we appear as manifest material beings, this spirit that suffuses the world as a sense sublime and is a changeless presence in reality, and that what he basically defines as yoga is, is a twofold process. First, we have to disentangle our identity our sense of who we really are from our mistaken view of change, our mistaken understanding that we are only the changeable world. 
So in his definition of yoga, what he calls this psychophysical consciousness, it moves in waves and patterns. It, it twists and turns, he says. He says, and, and so he defines yoga in the first part as the cessation or the relinquishment, the niroda, he calls it, the, the occlusion right, of these waves or movements, these twists or turns of the psychophysical identification with change. That's a little complicated, but so he, his, his definition is, is probably familiar to many people who are, are listening to us, if only because it's the, the famous second sutra or thread, the meme of Patanjali that says yoga, Yogas chitta vritti nirodaha, it says in the Sanskrit language. And so what that means is yoga is the cessation or the occlusion, the relinquishment or the, the, the stopping, the niroda, of what? Of the psychophysical movements of consciousness. That word movement is the word vritti. Now that word in Sanskrit vritti, which means change or cycle or movement, might in fact, just be translated twist and turn, the twists and turns or the whirlwind of consciousness, because that word vritti will take you all the way to the English word verse or, or what we're doing. We are having a conversation. We are with turns, literally. We're taking turns. And so anything that turns or changes, Patanjali associates with our limited being. And so what he suggests in part one of yoga is that is that we have to learn how to, to arrest that process, how to insulate ourselves from that process, how to um, extricate, get ourselves out of this process of identifying with the changeable, with the limited, with the conditional, with things that are merely temporal, so that we can then realize that there is this other facet of our being that is coextensive, that's, that's already been present. And that is perfectly still. It is changeless, immutable. And that is what he's going to call spirit or self or person, Purusha. And so Patanjali's yoga is built on this basic binary of matter and spirit. His first task is discipline, control, manage that process. Why? How? By connecting, by making yoga. What kind of a yoga? A yoga that causes us to to cease this identification with our temporal selves. So then what happens? So then we arrive at this identification with our deeper person, which he then says, and this is basically part two, liberates us from this endless cycle of failure and chronic identifications and brings us to this magnificent state of illumined immunity from the problematics of the world because one comes to the state of self, what potentially calls atma or self, and he's borrowing that, this idea from, from earlier sources. And he says, when you arrive at identification with atman or true self, you understand that, that uh, you came from eternity you never left eternity and you will and at death and that death is simply another material feature but one's spirit is is eternal and so carries on to eternal into eternality so first we have to discipline and 
organize and understand our relationship to the material temporal world and then we have to we have to find ourselves uh, in this identification with eternal spirit and when we do potentially says that that relieves us of the burdens of the ordinary world and brings us to an uninterrupted and immutable state of of ineffable joy of ecstasy and to make this even more complicated i mentioned at the top that this would be extremely frustrating mm. as we move on in time we see other formulations where one's relationship to change is viewed differently the binary is viewed differently as a scholar and a practitioner for for these many very many years as curiosity and interest in yoga has emerged you know in the west patanjali's definition of yoga has become virtually normative it's become kind of the benchmark or the standard for the definition of yoga and and you'll see you'll see thoughtful and well-meaning people say you know point to patanjali's definition which implies his model like his understanding of matter and spirit and his concerns and his practices and say well no that's really what yoga is and everything else needs to be understood in light of that um in fact patanjali is just one voice of definition in a complex history of definitions uh, and and ideas and practices as i said earlier the practices are are uncanny for their similarities right like the way we learn to meditate the way we learn to um to use our breath or adjust uh, other concerns of of other somatic concerns. What do we do with our bodies? And so the emergence of asana or posture or 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 disciplines of of our physical somatic being, and then and then mental disciplines and emotional emotional reformulations and connections and philosophical ideas. All of this is yoga, but in Patanjali, he's working from a very specific set of assumptions uh, inside a very uh, a very specific system, and that is just one system among many that are contemporaneous with Patanjali and that evolve into very different views. So by the time, so I think we can safely date Patanjali somewhere around the first century before the Christian era. Um, how do we do that? Well, we have to compare his language and his ideas to other traditions, but. Yoga is going to have a long and complex storied history that really doesn't become, uh, really doesn't arrive at its most fulsome expression for, for another five or six or even 700 years. Because somewhere between the 4th century and the 7th century CE, that is of our common era, that's about 500 years after Patanjali, is the rise of the phenomena that we we call Tantra, that the Indian tradition calls Tantra. Uh, and that too is a very kind of broad ranging and, and, and complex body of many traditions collected and amalgamated and where there's some common feature, but Tantra has very different kinds of models and ideas than what we find in Patanjali's yoga. One of the things that's really important here, Derek, is that 
is, is to see this in, in, in three very simple phases. How about we think about yoga this way? The earliest origins of yoga are really engagements with the world to, to create value in a worldly life. When, the, when yoga then enters its second phase with the rise of asceticism, the rise of this deeply asocial, introspective, contemplative, philosophical con- tradition that says, oh no, yoga's highest aims and its truest purpose is to take us to spiritual goals which are not of this world. And so the value of of the ordinary or the material world is now sublated or subjugated to these deeper concerns of spirit. And that's going to take us down the path of introversion and asceticism. But after Patanjali, who's really right in the heart of those traditions of asceticism, it's very hard to read Patanjali's yoga and or early Buddhism as not privileging the accomplishments of asceticism, because those are traditions of yoga that are saying, oh no, yoga's highest goals are spiritual and not material and not worldly. But after Patanjali and with the rise of Tantra, we get the third phase of the history of yoga. And in a certain way, it combines the first two phases. The earliest yoga really has no other worldly or spiritual concerns other than to say, other than to say spirit is success in the material world and let that entire process repeat itself. And then Patanjali and the other, one might say, ascetical and other worldly yogis come along and they say, no, yoga's highest purpose is not of this world. Tantra comes along and says, those highest aims of a spiritual life can also be found and lived in the world. And it's really almost from this last phase of tantric considerations that modern postural yoga takes its cues because modern postural yoga, at least as far as I can tell, is is looking in both directions. It's looking out into the world and saying, how can we better ourselves? How can we make ourselves healthy in body? How can we connect to ourselves as these living embodied temporal beings? And how do we live a life well-lived, a healthy life, uh, a life of, of value in the world? And then how do we self-yoke? The other concern of Tantra being something like Patanjali's concern. What more? What else is there? What deeper spiritual concern? And so I think modern postural yoga reflects the Tantra's sort of affirmation, what my teacher used to call radical affirmation, to say yes to the world and to say yes to the spirit to say yes to our limited self and to say uh, and to give a resounding affirmation to the possibilities of a deeper spiritual connection however that's defined and the tantra again is going to define that deep spiritual connection in genuinely diverse ways just the way every every hive of honeybees makes its own honey Every tradition is going to define its its ultimate claims differently. But this relationship between, one might say, ordinary worldly claims or worldly achievement and spiritual achievement, this is the principal concern that, that makes for Tantra. You know, the word Tantra um, literally means to weave or to loom, 
like warp and weft in two directions. And we can say that one direction is to succeed and prosper in embodied life, in material life. And, and the other direction, and in the weft, it is to succeed in a deeper kind of ultimate sensibility of the sublime connection. And, and so Tantra wants it both ways. It wants success in the world, and it wants a deep, abiding, spiritual and sublime sensibility. And I think it's important here, even though you've already alluded to it, got to it somewhat, that you often refer to most yogas being liberation models. Right, right. So one of the things that makes Patanjali kind of problematic as a normative definition, and you see this carry through the history of yoga, is that with the rise of asceticism, we get this basic binary, that the world is the problem to be solved, and that we endlessly repeat those problems. The insanity of the world that repeats endlessly its limited goals is goes by that word samsara. And samsara, <laughs> you know, there was a it's a cosmetics company not so many years ago that made a perfume called Samsara. I actually cut this ad out of out of a out of a Vogue magazine and held it up in front of my class. And so there's this lovely woman, you know, and the whole advertisement is is in this kind of glossy red color, and she's holding a perfume bottle and it says Samsara. And I held up this ad and I said, in early yoga, you need to understand that Samsara never smells good. Right. So whoever made this ad <laughs> flunked this class. Um, but the definition of samsara is a definition of bondage. Bondage to what? Well, we are bound to this identification with the limited, the temporal, the mortal, the, the, this kind of endless repetition of doing the same things and being captive of our desires. And that's a, such an important idea in yoga that, you know, you eat breakfast and you're hungry by lunch. And so you're always kind of being thrown back into the maelstrom, into the whirlwind, into the chitta vritti, this whirlwind of, of psychophysical experience, and that you have to extricate or exempt yourself or liberate yourself. And so we, we end up with samsara and nirvana in the Buddhist case. Uh, nirvana literally means extinction. And what are you? What are you extinguishing? You're extinguishing this false identity, this false process of limitation. Or on the Hindu side of the equation, we get samsara and moksha or mukti, liberation. And so you are liberated from the world. And when you are liberated from the world, the question then becomes: What concern do you still have with the world? And that's where. That's where traditionalists like Patanjali are so different than traditionalists that we see later on in the Tantra. Because in Patanjali, once you liberate yourself from this false identification with the world, there is no practical re-entry strategy. Yoga Sutras doesn't say, don't, don't really tell you what you do after you arrive at the sublime states of equanimity consciousness and the recognition of the eternality of spirit or purusha, there's no re-entry process. And, and because why would you? In Patanjali's world of materiality, that's all false identification. That's all just samsara. That just smells bad. Right? Whereas in the Tantra and in later traditions, we get, we get 
a claim of re-engagement so that one is not only liberated from the world, or one might say liberated from its limitations and constraints, but one is one is free to be in the world. So we are so in the later yogas we get we get theories of being free from, but also free to. That is free to act in the world, free to live our lives with deeper connection because we've made the sublime connection and we can bring that sense of of value and and suffused sublime identity back into our everyday lives. And that becomes a real controversy in the history of yoga. Um, are we here to kind of be liberated from the world? Or are we be are we here to find our freedom in the world? And then we're going to get even more radical ideas that being that instead of being instead of extricating ourselves or freeing ourselves from bondage, we can even bind ourselves to freedom. That is, that is, it is again, once again, the claim of a deeper engagement, a deeper, more subtle sense of connection that we're really after. And that once we have that deep sense of connection, then the world is no longer experienced as bondage. That very same world is experienced as freedom because we are free to commit. Let me give you one simple example of that, because this is part of what turns up in the later Tantra. The Tantra is often mistaken or misidentified mis with, with sex, and, and, and the internet definitions of Tantra will take you immediately down to, back to sort of sex and domination over the world and supernatural powers. But part of what the Tantra is saying is, is that when we make when we create a more sublime sense of intimacy, of deep and valued connection, then that is what liberation means. It doesn't mean being freed from the world. It means being free to make the deep connection. That sexuality becomes associated with what we might call a deep, soulful intimacy with oneself or with nature or with each other. That, that seems to me a logical connection. You know, like, you would say sex, a sexual or sensual connection is, is kind of just an extra piece, a kind of epiphenomenal part of what the Tantra is suggesting, which is that real, which is that a deeper liberation is one of deeper connection. Uh, and that's an intimacy. My own teacher used to talk about yoga as the pursuit of a deeper intimacy. And to have intimacy, we have to have clear boundaries. And, and a values a values aligned intimacy, a valued and aligned intimacy is an intimacy of boundaries because it says it says yes you may no you may not it 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 creates meaning by by valuing connections and understanding which ones um, which ones work well for you which ones are are helpful or appropriate and and which ones just muddle up or confuse the matter which kind of lead you back to you know. What kinds of connections throw you back into the maelstrom of confusion and 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 failures of heart and mind, and which kinds of connections are really um, subtle, wonderful ways of affirming the gift of of human experience and 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 so we can call all of those forms of intimacy and intimacy with nature like we find in in the great romantic poets or an intimacy of of connectivity that we find 
in all great storytelling, all of that counts as yoga in the later traditions, because again, what we're looking for is freedom as valued connection, which would in certain way, rather ironically, even oxymoronically, define freedom as a bondage, as the bond you make with valued connection. Not freed from the world, but free in the world because of the connections you're making. Right, which is an innovation in that it's not about being exempt, extricating, abrogating. Right, and that stands very much in contrast with the early ascetical traditions. You see, all of the great traditions of India undergo this process. You know, early Buddhism starts out very much in the ascetical world of turn away from the world and find this freedom from your limitations in this exalted state of awakening of Buddha in which you are kind of Teflon to the world. You know, you, like all of that suffering no longer sticks. You have extinguished the cause of suffering, which is unrequitable desire. You know, that's the basic organization of early Buddhism. You know, the world is a veil of tears because it endlessly repeats itself in unrequitable desire. The cause of that misidentification, that things going awry, that suffering, that dukkha is the word for suffering there. That cause of suffering is thirst. It's desire. Tershna is the Sanskrit word for that thirst. That's the second noble truth of the Buddhists that say we thirst and that's the cause of our suffering, the first truth. The third truth is, if we can extinguish that false desire, we can extinguish that suffering. That's what, and that's the word nirvana. And then the fourth noble truth gives us the path. It gives us the practices, the so-called eightfold path. That's the basic Buddhist model. But what you see in early Buddhism is exactly what we've been talking about. This is clearly a kind of turning away from the world to reach this spiritual goal. But later Buddhism gives us the ideal of the Bodhisattva. And then in Tantric Buddhism, the ideal of the Siddha and other characters who no longer advance the idea that we have to renounce the world, but that we can undertake this more sublime sense of awakening, that's the word Buddha, or awareness in sensibilities and connectivities without being bound to its limitations. And that those characters then stay in the world, as it were, like like the Buddhists say, the Bodhisattva does, the being destined um, to enlightenment and to and and teaches the rest of us how to live such uh, such a life of the sense sublime <laughs> i said the thought then would the exception of samsara not smelling good be the bodhisattva and i guess in that case the smell wouldn't be good or bad. It would just be simply an olfactory experience. Oh, it would just be a smell, right? And in other words, that's a really wonderful observation, Derek, because um, how you receive an experience becomes very much the definition of bondage and liberation. One person's yum is another person's yuck. And so what we're really assessing is, is how we, is, is the assessments we make. Right? right? That's what binds us. We go, we say yes to some things and no to others. And yoga traditions are very careful to tell us that how we experience the world, let me put it another way, the world we experience is our experience of the world. Yeah, you often ask, are you experiencing the world or are you experiencing your experience of the world? 
Right. And I think all the yoga traditions agree that that our that, that our experience of the world, our experience is our is experiencing the world. So and we can change we can change our experience because we don't need to change the world. Now, then and again, the traditions have divided over whether the world offers us an endless recurrence of of unsatisfactoriness of samsara or whether the world is just being the world. And when we change our attitudes and ideas and experiences, then we just register the world for what it is. Because in fact, that's all that's happening anyway. We are, our experience is our experience of the world. And we can change that. We can alter how we, how we receive that, how we offer that, how we interpret that. And I think what's so important about you starting this conversation with your auspicious encounter with Appa is that you probably wouldn't have arrived at this particular way of describing all this material or interpreting all this material had it not been for that. Is that correct? Well, I went to India, you know, looking for the exalted guru, you know, who, who somehow, who somehow lives in this blissful immunity from life's troubles and ordinary kind of circumstances of, of everyday success and failure. You know what? I went looking for this ideal of the romantic guru, the, 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 the yogi exempted from the problematics. And I, I, when Appa invited me to live in his house, what I came to see was that that was part of his teaching. He wanted me to see how to live a life committed to value and connection, committed to this pursuit that, that at the heart of human experience is something wondrous and sublime and, and deeply valuable, that human life is worth loving to its to the very core of our possibilities as they expand and open us but that isn't but that but then we will get up the next day and we'll live in the world and living in living in Uppa's house was seeing was seeing you know not not a guru who was exempt from the world or kind of lived in some exalted state but someone who could interpret the everyday as part of this greater task of yoga who could interpret every all the everyday tasks raising your children being in relationship going to work trying to stay healthy all of those everyday concerns are all integrated into into a comprehensive sense of life is yoga life is for the purpose of deep connection so do you really think you found someone that was other than what you were looking for or do you think when you think back to it your love of poetry and literature sort of primed you to resonate with someone like him. And the reason I bring it up is because of just the reduced presence of great literature in our lives today and just the importance of that mythology and the stories and the, the lessons right. that, that we Well, there's always been... Well, when, when, let's let's say it this way. Like when I mention Herman Hesse, for example, to people, mm. like eyes glaze over. 
And I, right. I feel like I was partially raised on Herman Hesse. Well, and, and Hesse was a you know a really important part of my own introduction to India and and into the stories of India because he wrote that magnificent little book called Siddhartha, which is in fact um, an alternative view and a criticism of the Buddha. Um, you know, Siddhartha is the protagonist of that book, and the Buddha is a character uh, in that story who who is both deeply respected, but is also uh, and and represents his own his own achievement. But but the claim that Hesse makes in that book is that is is not to be a Buddhist, not not to follow the Buddha, but to find one's own sense sublime. But let me say this: as the yoga evolves. There's a deeper connection between liberation and how should we say something like something like deep appreciation, appreciation for nature, for life, aesthetic appreciation, artistry, and to live and to live a life of artistry uh, is to is what my upa, my teacher used to call the, taking the long way home. Poetry, art, literature, dance, creativities, crafts, things that we do that that really reveal the depths of human character and human concern, where there's where there's an appreciation, a savoring of life. You know, the greatest of the tantric yogis is the very famous character in Indian of Indian civilization, his name was Abhinavagupta. And Abhinavagupta wrote voluminously about the practices and of yoga that that are comprehensive and integrated teachings of body and mind and heart, ritual, and and very subtle metaphysics. But he also wrote the definitive study of poetry and theater. He wrote he wrote the work he wrote the most important work of literary criticism because he was talking about literally what he was calling taste and savoring and a resonance with the world. And so that sense of pursuing a life of artistry and creativity became deeply identified with a life of yoga. And I think that that's where my own teacher landed. And that's how I land on yoga, to live a life of value and of far-ranging curiosity into human creativity. So I'm curious about sort of the magnificent, sublime ways in which science reveals the world and literature and poetry and art um, and all of those ways that kind of look deep into human character and explore light and shadow, explore what's revealed and what's hidden and, and go to places that are both positive and affirming and to places that are difficult and dark and shadow-ridden and ask ourselves, who are we and what more can we be? And what better way than in the studies of those who've taken up those issues in art or in architecture, in music or in poetry or in the study of language or in the study of physics or biology? Any deep and penetrating concern is a way of looking out at nature and seeing nature and culture in one's own individual development and, and embodiment as, as a connection, as an invitation to yoga. Now, we're not obliged, but we can savor this life. And I think that's why most of my own studies these days and most of my own teaching focuses on 
mythology and ritual and other practices that are quite practical and embodied. But, you know, the definition of a myth is a really wonderful way to understand yoga. You know, a myth is a self-conscious lie told in the service of a deeper truth. <laughs> so when we, when we start, when we start a myth, we, we say once upon a time, and it's, it's almost as if we're saying, I'm going to tell you a story that you know is fictive and exaggerated or untrue in some factual way. And yet what I'm doing is I'm telling you a story that means to get more deeply into things. I'm lying in order to tell you a deeper truth. And, 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 and that doesn't dismiss the facts of the world. That doesn't tell us that, that uh, think of it this way, uh, science and facts are the shortest distance between two, two valuable ideas, like an equation. Science is the way to reveal as far as we can the truths of the world that can be repeated. But a myth or a work of art is a way of, of transmuting and altering ourselves, of taking ourselves down through the deeper passages of soulfulness and of feeling and of sensibility that take us to love and intimacy and a sense of valued connection. And the goal of yoga then becomes to love life, to savor it. There's a great word in the tantra. It's the word ashwata, and it literally means ashwada. It literally means like relishing, savoring. And so, and so myth and poetry, my teacher used to say, that's the long way home. Science, science is, the, is, is how you launch to the moon. It's the, it's the expeditious way to fact, to truth. So we want the long way and we want the short way. We want, we want poetry and we want science. And poetry there becomes kind of a euphemism for any creative act. I think of modern postural yoga as a creative, a creative, as creative embodiment. It's a kind of artistry. And when you see an accomplished yogi or, or, or a yoga teacher on glow, those those folks are so competent and professional. They make something so difficult look easy. Now we're doing yoga. That's what yoga is. It's mm. making something excellent and difficult and rare look fluid and 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 virtuosic. And in that sense, uh, any endeavor that that gives us that sense of deep connection and fluency and virtuosity, that's a yoga that lets us love and appreciate life. It's like watching an Olympic gymnast or watching a yogi or watching a scholar work out the math on the blackboard, right? So you watch a scholar do math, do the mathematics on the blackboard or, 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 or reveal some, some incredibly difficult or complicated idea unfold before your eyes to make something difficult look easy to to give virtuosity to to the creativities of the mind or the insights of science or the insights of craft or poetry um, to see an architect's work uh, trans transform itself into a physical building all of that is yoga because all of that is a deep connection of appreciation of creativity
Is there a tie between everything that we're discussing and the process of growing up, the process of mm. becoming an adult? And the reason why I ask is we're at a point in our country where it seems to me growing up and maturation is partly about facing the things we don't want to face either about ourselves or shadow aspects of ourselves or our country facing lies. And professor Eddie Glaub said recently on um, the code switch podcast that you know, we may not be unique in our sins. We just may be unique in the efficient way in which we deny them. Right. Right. Well, I think professor Gladys and what you're referring to is, is really the ordinary process that, on the one hand, civilizes us, but in the very process of becoming, you know, competent adults, we are subject to to all those necessary repressions and 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 oppressions that the world gives us. You know, so as we come of age, when we're four or five, you know, our wildness is domesticated, and as the great critic and poet Robert Bly says, then we, we take all those things that we really feel or we're thinking and we stuff them in a bag and we carry them around with us and they become these unfinished projects. And all of this, you know, in a certain way goes back to very fundamental issues of our being human. We all want to be held and cherished and safe, but we don't want to be suffocated and, and contained. We all want to be free and and at liberty and in the sense of our own choice and yet we don't want we don't want it to be mayhem or anarchy or 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 just madness and so we're always we're always as human beings in this fine line between between you know what the jungians call suffocation and abandonment you know, we don't. We want to be held, but not suffocated. We we want to be free, but not abandoned. And in that whole process of becoming, in our maturation, we're constantly being demands are being made upon us by society, by family, by work, by the expectations of the world, and we rebel against that. And when we don't know how to rebel, or we don't know how to contend with what the world is delivering. We often turn to madness or to violence or to conspiracy theories, and we project on others because, because you know, even, even as the insurrectionists were saying, you know, in the Capitol, what do I have to do to be heard? That's a legitimate question, but the way they've acted it out is the opposite of what we, what we would call yoga, because rather than enter deeply into this natural kind of conflict, a natural form of paradox. The paradox, again, I want to be held but not suffocated. I want to be free, but I want there to be I want there to be possibilities, structure. You know, I want there to be enough opportunity uh, to make something of meaning, of purpose, to make some order of the world, to make some sense of the world. And so when we don't know how to do that, we resort to our worst natures. But, you know, Robert Bly rather clearly says from the time we're very small, we're constantly being kind of self-subjugating 
and oppressed by a world that puts demands on us. Well, how do we answer to the world? How do we answer to ourselves? What questions are we asking that really address these deeper concerns of what of what we have to restrain ourselves? Let me give you an interesting example. I think, Derek, it's very it's been very warming to me because um, if you follow the news, for example, you can follow someone like Eddie Gloud, that wonderful Princeton professor, and when he's on, you know, when he's on the the media, like like on the news, say he's say he makes an appearance on MSNBC, he speaks one way, but on a podcast, he's cut loose and he'll drop the occasional f bomb, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and and you'll 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 see that that that's a perfect example of what we're saying. Like it's inappropriate to be dropping those f bombs in the public media, right? Like it would it would be vulgar. It really like I, I don't mind that kind of. And he's self censoring, and the world is censoring him, right? When he's say on television, then he gets on the podcast. He's cut. He's cut a little more loose. He can kind of speak a little more freely, and. And, and yet he's still obliged to try to say what he means and mean what he says. And that is a, that's a great yoga, um, to, know, to know how to deal with a world that, on the one hand, is giving you, is, is in some sense, has given us what yoga traditions call grace, the grace of life itself, the wonder of being born. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We don't pay it back, really. Life is a gift. And yet that gift comes with terms and conditions. And then it comes with socialization and then personal ambitions and aspirations. And we succeed at some and fail at others. And somehow we have to integrate and incorporate. And and then what yoga promises is, well, we can actualize ourselves under those conditions, sometimes despite those conditions. And then we can actually act for ways, we, we can act in ways that, that better the world itself, not just ourselves. But there's something, there's something that we can pass along that's greater and more valuable than our own individual ambitions, our own individual wants. We do that with our children or with our country or with our culture. And so we say... And so we and so we make a yoga that um, that deals with just the inherent problematics of being human. You know, you want to be free to say anything, but but you know, I think wisely, for example, the United States Supreme Court says, well, free speech doesn't mean you can say anything. You can't say fire in a movie theater. You know, you can't scream fire in a movie theater. That's not free speech. That's irresponsible speech, and that's or inappropriate speech. And what we're really saying here is yoga is the way we make a connection where we know what's of value so that we know what's not just what's legit and what's approved, but what's helpful, what's constructive, what's skillful. And living skillfully is a fine definition of yoga. That's, in fact, another definition that Krishna gives in the Bhagavad Gita. He says, yoga kausalyam, yoga is skillful in living. But is that problematic, like Professor Gloud says? Of course it is, because we are, and that, that in a sense, is a new definition of samsara. If we just put it in 21st century terms, you know, we want to do whatever we want to do, but society and the world has another idea, right? 
or has other constraints or other oppressions. So how do we experience our freedom in a world of limitations? And where is our limitless, sublime presence in a world defined by the limitations? Some of those limitations are constructive and skillful, and some of them are oppressive and and unjust and and discreditable. So understanding understanding what is of value and what's freeing and skillful, what's oppressive and and unjust, that's a yoga too. I think of I think of Eddie Gloud as quite the yogi. <laughs> Let me put it one more way if I may. I love that. And that is it's not answering those questions. It's being able to ask them and interrogate them skillfully. Right. That's what a great yoga does. Yoga isn't only about answers to, to difficult questions or solving problems. Yoga is about embracing paradox and asking more interesting questions, more compelling and valuable questions. Wow. We could take this so much further. I can imagine for someone listening, there are probably sections of what you've said that um, many are thinking, I need to listen to that over and over again. And I just want to say you're not alone. I, over the, the decade plus of knowing you, Douglas, I um, have been lucky to have certain recordings of yours and I listen to them over and over again so that some of these concepts uh, find their way into my soul and, and integrated. It's, uh, it's, it's very helpful. Well, I, I have... I have faults too many to list, but I'm both prosaic and verbose, but what I'm, but I am passionate. And I think that yoga is not only about harnessing and disciplining and controlling your passions, but it's living in your passions constructively and creatively and, and allowing your passions to take you to things of value, like, like, like living in a human body that where you have to say to yourself, you know, the care and concern we have here isn't mere selfishness. It's, it's, it's cherishing a gift. It's respecting a treasure that we have this life. And, and, and giving that opportunity and letting the gift of life become a gift to others, that's a, that's a great yoga too, you know, to give people a chance to, to love their lives. Um, and that's that's a task that's going to bring yoga into realms of social justice and of and even social revolutions where we have to completely rethink our identity you know um let's, let's even thinking of it in in very more recent terms are we willing to take up the story of america for example and uh from 1619 you know a story that on the one hand is uh is memorialized, immemorialized in, in, in words like, like life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, um, you know, freedom, and at the same time was built on the backs of exploitation and, and enslavement and theft. And so the whole story of both light and shadow is a story, is, is what we interrogate is what we ask about. It's what we examine when we become yogis. We look for that deep engagement of light 
which we must commend. You know, the 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 persons who wrote who wrote those immortal words in the Declaration of Independence were also misogynist, slave-holding, um, you know, committed inexcusable crimes, and yet they also they also expressed these remarkable human possibilities. Who who are we? Who can we be? What could we be? Those are the questions we can ask in yoga. That is the yoga that I was exposed to in college. And that is the yoga that inspired me to start this company. Mm -hmm. And I'm so grateful that you exist and that uh, the ideas, concepts that you've shared exist. Because I truly believe that these sensibilities, these ways of thinking of ourselves, thinking of our place in the world, how we move forward together are essential, critical. Well, let me say this, and not to blow smoke, um, but GLOW has it in the right order because it's the old traditional ways. Um, yoga says how to, you know, Yoga GLOW or GLOW now. Glow has an interest in the body, in nourishment, in food, in, in basic human well-being, right? In, in, in basic everyday human concerns of embodiment. And, and, and when those concerns and nourishments are addressed and meant and, and, and taken up with some commitment and some practices that actually little by little and again and again produce efficacious results. People feel better. They're healthier. They feel more connected in all of those ways that they will then take up the next phases of yoga, which is what then, what then to do with a life well-lived and a life worth living. Well, there is so much to appreciate. There is so much to love about life, including the human creativities and, and artistries and also the human problematics that have to do with with how we treat each other in far less edifying ways, in 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 injustice and in cruelty, in inadequacies, and all of those ways, our commitments to making life better and worthwhile, all of those are yoga. But they all start with they all start with a sense of self care, and that the world of self care extends into a world we should care about, and how we care about that world, and the ways in which we address those cares. That's yoga. And part of that growth and evolution, which is why I brought up the concept of growing up earlier, is as that growth occurs, it's harder, not harder, it's, it's less congruent with one's values to remain in certain ways. So for example, I quoted Professor Glaude earlier sentence right before that in that particular episode, which I'll post in the show notes, he said many things that were amazing. I highly recommend that episode to everyone. Um, but referring to, you know, the fact that America is like never, never land. We all want to be lost boys and girls where we don't want to be responsible or mm -hmm. accountable. We want, we'd rather be safe and secure in our innocence. And people either don't know or don't want to admit what has happened in this country and that you can't be innocent in the face of that. Correct. In, the innocence is the crime. And I love that you refer to his either way of being or his work as being great yoga. 
because most people wouldn't connect the two, right? And that's mm. one of the hopes that I had for this particular episode, even though we're going way over what, what I had envisioned for us, is for someone who has made it this far in the episode to realize, okay, wow, that's actually, that's great yoga. I did not know that. Well, the deep study of history, the pursuit of social justice, that's an appreciation and a love of life. Eddie Gloud's devoted his life to those issues. You know, Robert Bly, who we've mentioned before, wrote a similar critique in the early 90s, a book that's what's called The Sibling Society. And there's a fantastic chapter in there about the Hindu god Ganesha, by the way. You should, I, I warmly recommend that to, to our listeners, or to those of you who haven't read Bly's Sibling Society. But he says, we've just failed to grow up. What he means by that is we failed to take seriously the entirety of our story, the story of light and of shadow, the story of that William Blake called innocence and experience. And that that and that this clinging to innocence, this clinging to the, the shiny side uh, is an evasion and a neglect and, in fact, a criminal abuse of the depths of our history. And that if we, in fact, have the courage and the seriousness and the real love and concern for each other, we, we would take that history of light and shadow you know, of, of aspiration and exploitation seriously. And we could integrate both all of those sides of our story. And part of what Gloud is saying and what Bly is saying is what the history of yoga really is saying. And it's saying un, until and unless we, we ask the difficult questions and take up the entire project of what is aspirational and admirable along with what is what with what is regrettable reprehensible and 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 the dark side of our story unless we take it all up and integrate it into one greater story we we won't arrive at our aspirational society that is un, until we take up the seriousness of the entire story until we have that conversation say in america about our original sin and about the exploitation of our society then we won't arrive at that great aspirational sense of opportunity of freedom of genuine liberty of liberation right and 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 so are we willing to do the difficult work that would lead us to that aspirational ascendancy. And, and unless we take up the whole story of ourselves and realize that the work is going to be challenging, sometimes going to be tedious, sometimes it's going to be very unpleasant or uncomfortable, but that is also yoga. But when we take it seriously, we will quickly arrive at at, at, at progress and furtherance because we have included everything in the story that, that takes to heart what we have done, what we have inherited, who we are, who we, who we could be now takes on more serious dimensions because we are actually dealing with who we have been and who we are. I have goosebumps. You know, I wasn't planning on <laughs> quoting Professor Glaude. I was. I have an interview with Professor Rhonda McGee, who's a professor of law at uh, University of San Francisco, 
later Ooh. this week. Uh, I want to talk to her about her book titled The Inner Work of Racial Justice. And I, now that we've gone here, Douglas, I I was considering saving this bit um, for for my conversation with her, and I think it would be a value to, to bring it back up. But in that same Code Switch episode, they quote James Baldwin, and you said so many things where I feel like this conversation wouldn't be complete if I didn't also share what they how they quoted him and and he said you know one of the things that most afflicts this country is that white people don't know who they are or where they come from that's why you think i'm a problem i am not the problem your history is and as long as you pretend you don't know your history you're going to be a prisoner of it when white people talk about progress in relation to black people all they are saying and all they could possibly mean by the word progress is how quickly and how thoroughly I become white. I don't want to become white. I want to grow up, and so should you. Wow. You know, Baldwin really is that prophetic voice of American aspiration um, and of truth-telling and of laying bare the hard and dis discomforting facts of our own history. Um, but he's still, what I still hear in James Baldwin is aspirational freedom. You know, and a deep connection, and and not merely criticism or reproof, but attempting to reach into that white audience, and to help us, to educate us, and to transform us. And yoga is about the kinds of change we can make for willing to take seriously that not only our own voices, but the voices of those who empower us to see more deeply into our history, into our, into ourselves, into what, what structures and systems we've inherited and how we are complicit and participating in those worlds. Let me say one more thing about ancient India and the connection of yoga to this conversation. It, it may seem a little oblique, but it really isn't. You know, ancient India did have a sense of answering to an aspiration of of holding fast a world that's in a whirlwind. You know, ancient India has this word dharma. Dharma comes from a verbal root that means to make resolute, to hold fast, to make steady, to fix. To, and that's because the world is so tumultuous. You know, it's so dangerous and precarious. And we're so fragile in our own feelings and thoughts. And yet and yet Dharma also, in the old Indian sense, meant the law, but it didn't mean the law simply as a constraint or as a as a as some kind of 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 threat. It meant it meant we all answer to a higher sensibility. And 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 so we are all equal before the law. Um and that of course is where America has failed. Because we, we haven't, we've only in the last 50 years even admitted that all American citizens are equal before the law. Uh, it's such a, a small piece of this complicated story of exploitation and, and enslavement. Um, and our sexism and, and racism are all features of, of our, in fact, not living up to our aspiration of being equal before the law or, or in the law in this sense, meaning an aspirational system or structure that advances our liberty, that gives us opportunity, that, that 
that creates that creates a sense of value and character that we can then translate into relationships of of meaning of neighborliness of citizenship of relationships to each other that that allow us to feel free and feel equal and that is a great yoga yes that is a great yoga i i want to ask you one last question douglas so you know how some podcasts ask a standard question at the end of an episode and I was considering not having one and I was sharing that with Lisa. She said, you know, why don't you ask one that's tied to our mission and vision statement? And, you know, so, you know, Glow's why statement celebrates our connection to one another and our planet and ultimately how self-care supports these connections in order to show up for ourselves and our communities and our planet we ultimately have to take care of ourselves. And so the question, and I'm still working out a refined version of this question, but is, you know, how is this interconnectivity between our own self-care and care for our planet evident in your life? Mm-hmm. Or in what ways do you connect with our planet? And how have these connections deepened your desire to protect and preserve our environment? Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a wonderful question in the sense that we have Lisa to thank for that. It, well, and, well, and I know you know, Lisa. yes, of course. Um, and for no, for people who don't know, Lisa is my wife. Uh, she is also our chief impact officer at glow. Yeah. She's, she's, she's our, she's our conscience and our character. Uh, Lisa's a, an amazing example of a person whose self-care is, is constantly reaching out into the care of others. And I think that that's, I think that's the important feature to to first consider not how we that that when we take up the project of self-care we have to simultaneously realize how we have been made how we've been made by history by family by culture how that that how that world has created us we're not only creating the world the world is is has created us and it's created us with values that I think that that our project of of self care is an invitation to understanding how the world has cared for us. Now the planet cares for us and nature cares for us by by giving us this precious gift of human life. And nature's care is is generous and the, because it gives us nourishment and it gives us all of the terms and conditions of life, nature's care is also is also blind and pitiless and indifferent because it it doesn't it doesn't have that self conscious reach into care. It, it provides opportunity to the world and and in the natural world we come through that world and anything can happen to us. You know, there's um, nature isn't just in that sense. Justice comes from from our own creativities. And so the invitation to self-care is an invitation to ask ourselves how the world has made us naturally and then culturally and socially and historically. And what, what do we see and what, what, what are we aware of and where are our blind spots? What, 
how has the world created us in ways that that also bring with it our prejudices our our concealed desires our implicit structural self formulations you know we we don't just make ourselves the world makes us and and in each of us that comes that comes in particular and in peculiar ways by our environment by our culture and history by our family relationships but in all of those ways yoga becomes an invitation that when we take up self care we are in fact asking ourselves how does the world care for us and how how can we care for the world how can we make the conditions of the natural world more just and opportune for others to take up their own their own opportunities their own their own pursuit of freedom and and this deliciousness of life that is possible if we just give people a chance and so self care um can easily be kind of become bypass and a sort of an indulgence that leans into kind of an incipient narcissism that that I think is is really one of the great dangers of modern yoga that that we that our introspections and our self-care become indulgences and 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 ways to skip by uh the great concerns of the world but I think that it's quite the opposite. I think the more we take to heart self-care, the more we care for others and how they have been made and what and how life has kind of handed them their history and their deals. And like I said, in ancient India, yoga is intimately related to dharma, and dharma means justice, and it, and it, it means righteousness and goodness. And Dharma means how to make the world a better place. Um, and until we care for ourselves and become responsible for self-care, um, that's just the first step. Because we have to also understand how the world has made us and what it's done to others. Maybe the greatest gift of yoga and of self-care is the project of empathy and the project of connection. And empathy and connection are really vital because empathy is an audacious idea, Derek. It's a, it's a radical idea. It presumes to say, I know how you feel, or I feel what you feel. Now, that that is at once a trespass, a presumption. How dare I say, I know how you feel? And And yet, at the same time, it's a reach into our shared humanity. It's a desire to desire an aspiration to feel as another might feel, to understand their conditions and their terms, much the way James Baldwin describes to us how, how white folk in America have always just projected whiteness on black people. Instead of saying, well, who are you? What do you feel? And what do you want? You know, what are your hopes and aspirations? And I want, because I want to feel that. I want to feel how you feel. And so we extend out of our own narrow identities and into a greater sensibility of receiving other people's experiences and seeing other people and listening and receiving. You know, yoga is, is about becoming more receptive, even as it is about 
becoming more alert and aware and more penetrative of the truths of the world. But we can't, we can't, we can't enter into and penetrate and examine those truths of the world until we become more sensibly receptive and aspire to the impossible, which is empathy, the impossible, the audacious claim of empathy. But without that, we, but with, and with that, we can aspire to a greater humanity. And without that, we'll never, we'll never pass self-care. It'll just be self-indulgence. So making more of that, you know, making more of that experience of, so how do I, no, you asked me earlier, how in my own experience do I do that? Um, well, in the simplest ways, I, I try to live my everyday life with a deep connection to nature. I'm very lucky this way because while I'm a college professor by day, uh, I live on 50 acres of, of, on a beautiful old farm. And, and we see and, and experience nature every day uh, in this volatile, <laughs> this volatile environment of crazy weather and, and beautiful nature. And I try every day to breathe in how lucky I am to have this chance and how privileged and fortunate that is. But I'm an educator by profession, and, and I try to convey to my students who are still young you know, so, and still on this path that that these conflicts and struggles that are transforming them into adults that are taking them into their maturation, that, that to feel that struggle and to feel that conflict is normal and, and to embrace the possibilities of their own self care and, and their own deepening awareness of how their situation has made them. And then to offer them, um, worlds of yoga, uh, the worlds of yoga are astonishing, says the Shiva Sutra. And those worlds of yoga are worlds of social justice and art and poetry and great literature and the exploration of enduring values and criticism of those who've succeeded and failed. Uh, all through that, all through human history. And so in the study of history and artistry and language and mythology and ritual, those are my common, kind of the common fare of my courses. Those are all places where um, you get to invite students to, to experience themselves. Um, you know, I'll have what you're having <laughs> with sort of a, I'd like to have what you're having uh, was that experience I had as a kid. Um, to see someone like my own teacher who was, was generous and erudite and, sensitive, kind of vastly curious. Um, one of the more interesting things about my own teacher is that he never presumed to know what I thought or felt. He would ask. He was curious about it. He didn't have this kind of fake omniscience of guru or of teacher. Oh, I know that. He was much more receptive and curious to know what that was like. I can tell you one little story about this. It's very sweet. I once said to him, Appa, how will I ever know all the things that you know? How will I ever have your experience? That was the trigger. Because at that moment, he laughed. He put his head back and he said, I grew up in a village without running water and electricity and didn't own a pair of shoes until I was 25 years old. How could you possibly have my experience? 
You don't want my experience. You want to know what it was like to have my experience. Your interest, your, your curiosity is empathy, he said. You want to know what that feels like? I can try to tell you, but you must care for your experience and understand how your, how your world has been created. And then, and then as you extend out in that curiosity and imagination and empathy, you create a yoga, a connection, by, by doing the impossible, by aspiring to offer to others your experience and to receive others' experiences as, as another part of a greater integrated life, an actualization of your own heart, your own yoga. That's a beautiful ending and beginning. Thank you, Douglas. Well, thank you for having me, Derek. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at GLOW. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider at Red Cub Agency for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find the Glow Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills. Derek Mills.